Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It's quite possible, Jane, that we might have in the offing off Air's first wedding. Oh. Yeah. Because Olivia, who wrote to us from Brisbane, yeah. and she was the young lady who was a little bit lonely on coming back from her friend's fantastic wedding. Wedding, yep. yep. Uh, so lots of people have got in touch, one of your favourite phrases, I know, yes. uh, to suggest positive things that she could do. And one, John, has got a positive person that she could meet. Uh, Dear Jane and Fee, I was listening to your podcast earlier and heard your Australian listener who had been left feeling some post-wedding blues after attending her friend's marriage. I would like to firstly echo your reassurance to the listener in question. This was a very normal feeling. I, like Jane, don't often attend weddings these days, but I felt it... (laughs) That makes it sound like you were invited to loads, but you simply, <laughs> I don't wish to attend. No, thank you. I'm no longer attending weddings, <laughs> just funerals. Oh, God. <laughs> well, shall I carry on? Sorry. Yeah. Uh, secondly, I wanted to perhaps a bit boldly suggest my younger brother as a potential romantic interest for the young woman in question. Ooh. John does immediately say, it does occur to me that I'm not 100% sure if your correspondent made her preference for the gender of her future romantic interest clear. So apologies if I'm suggesting the wrong sort of person. But if your correspondent is interested in a young man, my brother is 30, is currently touring Australia on a year-long post-COVID sabbatical. He's very handsome, very funny, and I think perhaps most importantly is just one of the nicest, most genuine people I know. If you're after further references, I know my sister listens to your podcast and I'm sure she'd echo my description. We're going to need somebody outside the family, John. Uh, but he does <laughs> he does sound absolutely lovely. Yes. Uh, and John ends by saying, I've already lost one sibling to a glamorous life abroad and I'm increasingly resigned to lose the other sibling. So it would be some comfort to at least lose him to someone who listens to your podcast. What a lovely, thoughtful that email it's to great. send. Yes, thank you, John. And Olivia, if you are interested, uh, then we will put you in touch uh, in, uh, you know, proper way do we have to fill out a form or something so we'll fly out to australia and we will chaperone you good idea sister we'll make sure it's ordered no that would i mean who knows who knows it might work out and actually olivia in brisbane uh, i hope you're um i hope you're touched by the fact that so many people are 
they're just interested and they're and they they're sympathetic really um this is from jill um she says i listened to your podcast i wanted to write to you about olivia in brisbane i was so similar to her a couple of years ago although i was a bit older at 36 i'd spent a few years with nobody special seeing so many friends around me in relationships and having families and it was a really lonely and sad time for me Eventually, I made a very conscious decision that I was going to spend a year really looking for that special someone. And as well as doing the regular dating app stuff, I did three other big things. I signed up with a matchmaker. Yes, it did cost money to get on her books, but that meant that everyone else signed up with her had also paid money and really wanted a serious relationship. It didn't work out with anyone she matched me with in the end, but it was a relief to meet people who had the same goals as I did. And actually, there was some real potential in some of the matches she made for me. Two, I made myself vulnerable and I asked all of my good friends and their male partners if they knew anyone they could set me up with. Thinking back on that now, it makes me squirm with embarrassment because I'm a private person. But I did end up on some lovely dates and was amazed how many good single people there were out there who I hadn't been meeting on the apps. And three, I asked my friends to write me a message telling me how they describe me so that I could use those words and their descriptions in my dating profiles. Some of the things they wrote back to me were really wonderful and they actually brought me to tears. They gave me a bit of confidence, confidence I hadn't had for a long time, if ever. And it gave me a different way to describe myself on the apps as well. Now, I don't know if any of this will help Olivia, but maybe it'll give her a few ideas. And yes, because this is the good bit, I know it's not all that matters in life, but it's important to say that Jill did meet her person a week before her 37th birthday, and I'm still very happy with him five years later. I'm so grateful for him and us in a way that I don't think couples who met in their 20s can ever understand. There you go. Jill, thank you for your email too. Really lovely. And do you know what? I completely agree with you, Jill, about number two and making yourself vulnerable. And I think it feels so difficult, doesn't it, if you find yourself singled or you've just been single too long to not allow that, can never say the word properly, carapace. What? That mask to develop, I'm fine, I'm okay, yeah, I'll get through it, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. whatever. And I think it's very brave, but does also reap rewards to actually put your hand up and say, uh, I'm a bit lonely, I'm a bit anxious, I'm a bit bored, I'm a bit sad. Is there any chance that someone could help me out here? Mm. And nine out of ten people will. But I think you just have to be brave in that moment and say, and you're right, Jane, there's nothing wrong with being single as long as you're happy being single. But it's miserable if well, you're every, not. It doesn't matter what your situation is. We all have our moments. Um, but I think you raise a really good point. And I think it's hard. I mean, I'm, you know, this is me personally talking. I do think it's hard to make yourself vulnerable to say to people, you know what? Yeah, I am fine most of the time. But yeah, there's always a but for whoever you are. But yes, I think being single, whether you're in your 30s, I think there's a pressure in your 30s because so many people are matching up around you and then the baby thing starts. And if that's not happening to you or for you, that can be really difficult. And then again, in your in your late 50s or even your 60s or 70s, you can just feel, oh, everyone else, everyone else is in a couple and I'm not, what's wrong with me? And it's really difficult. So uh, thanks to everybody who just 
took the time and was so thoughtful about the emails because there have been some really nice ones. Oh, yeah, and just... Really nice ones. And, and where we started with Olivia as well was her being fed up with the platitudes coming her way that, you know, yeah. this will happen, of course it'll happen It'll to happen, you. happen it'll when happen. you least expect it. And, and actually, uh, how fantastic that so many of our listeners are with us on actually let's do something practical for Olivia instead of chuck all of that back her, at her. So, look, this is a, what we call in the business a developing story. Yes, yeah, we'll so here's, here's actually just one from Linda who says... Can I just say I totally identified with the lady who wrote in about coming home from a wedding. Uh, I'm exactly the same and also find that people do say similar platitudes when I mention being single at the age of 50 something. I don't know what the answer is. I have tried online dating to minimal success, but I do have great friends and I'm not defined by being single. It's just that I would like to meet somebody. I just wanted to say to others like me, you are not alone. Um, Linda, thank you too. And it's Jane and Fee at times.radio. Now, we had a very good guest on the programme today, didn't we? Shall we introduce the big guest and maybe just squeeze an email or two in afterwards? Yes, although can I just draw attention to the Pennestone Cinema uh, in Barnsley? Oh, yes, Thanks to our correspondent Colin in Sheffield. It's uh, a Paramount Cinema. It's a fantastic old traditional cinema where you can step back in time uh, to when everybody went to the pictures to see the latest film. The first time I went to the Paramount, says Colin, I was quietly enjoying the film when the big screen went big screen went blank and the big lights came on. I thought the projector had broken. Then a whirring sound caught my attention from the side of the auditorium. It was a lady opening a sliding door to the bar refreshment area. Then an usherette appeared with a tray of ice creams and stood in front of the screen. Yes. It was an interval. A queue had quickly developed into the refreshment room. I was the last one into the room. I bought a coffee and sat down on the plush seating. I took a couple of quick drinks of my coffee as I didn't want to miss the restart. Then the barmaid said, no need to rush, love. They won't start the film until everyone's back in their seats. It's wonderful and I would recommend the Paramount to anyone who wants to experience the good old-fashioned cinema rather than the crowded, overpriced and impersonal studio cinemas in the big cities. Have I sold it to you, says Colin. Yes, you have, Colin. Well, we'll pop there after we've had our little jaunt to Brisbane. Yeah, exactly. We'll just be on tour. We'll be so busy, what with that and the coronation and Eurovision and the snow coming next week. Do you know what I quite like in cinemas, Jane? Big headphones like the ones what we're wearing now. How would that help in a cinema? Because then you wouldn't have to listen to the sound of everybody else eating. Oh, yeah. And everybody just eats from start to finish now. Do they? Yes, they do. So back in the day, sorry about the creaking doors of yonder opening here, but there just wasn't there just wasn't a snack that would last you, you know, two and a half hours in a film. You got an ice cream cone or a small box of popcorn, didn't you? No, I used to get a, one of those grab bags of minstrels. No, there wasn't such thing as a grab bag in the 1980s. You're imagining it. Oh. You'd be lucky if you had a family-sized something, but possibly of newberry fruits. <laughs> I don't like those, the very smelly... Is it tacos? Yeah, Te- so tacos? now you just get these trays. Oh, I don't like don't those. Then everybody, you know, once they finish that, someone pops out and gets nine enormous seven ounces of Coca-Cola yeah, and all that kind of, of stuff. So it just goes on and on, and I just can't stand it. But why don't they just give us headphones? And then everyone could be listening at a different level. And uh, you wouldn't have to listen to everybody chatting their way through, too. It's a tiny suggestion. 
That's actually quite a big suggestion. Oh, my chest, thank goodness. So right. today we yes. talked uh, to Joanna Wolfarth, uh, the author of a really interesting book about breastfeeding. Well, about milk, really. Now, um, this is one of those subjects that it's, it's never boring. Everyone has a view. And as we discussed in the conversation, there's a lot of judgment around breastfeeding, whether you do it or not, how long you do it for. Where do you do it? Are you doing it in the right way? What does everybody else in the family think? It's so complicated and it can be incredibly stressful. But there is a great quote in her book about breast milk, which she describes as a finely tuned substance and the only foodstuff specifically and uniquely designed for human consumption. Well, that's true. But as she describes in the conversation we're about to listen to, it doesn't mean that breastfeeding itself is all that simple. <laughs> no, it does not. Um, so yes, we know that breast milk is an extraordinary substance. And I think we people have known that um, for forever, for thousands of years, right? Um, although it's only very, very recently that we actually have a real understanding of what breast milk is and what it contains. Um, and so I was, you know, I was really intrigued because I'd grown up with this message of breast is best. Um, so I did a little search when I was writing the book um, of an academic database, uh, the Web of Science. And um, there's something like there was something like 10,000 articles um, on tomatoes uh, <laughs> and something like 3,000 3, on breast milk. So there was there's wow. very little research on breast milk. Um, and it's, you know, but but it is you know, it is a fantastic substance. However, <laughs> um, you know, it's it, it, that doesn't mean breastfeeding is easy. It doesn't always mean that breastfeeding is best for for a particular woman or a particular family. Um, and, you know, I, I felt when I was a new mother, um, breastfeeding was very important for my motherhood. Um, but I also felt very fortunate that I live in a time where we have formula, where we have sterilisation, where we have these technologies um, to support breastfeeding as well. In your experience, we should say your son is, he's just started school. He so has, he's, he's yes. four and a half now. Yes. Um, you went to hospital and um, you had a few early problems and your baby was given formula. Mm -hmm. And then I think it was almost the next day that a breastfeeding counsellor came to the ward. You were all ushered to the end of the ward and you were given a lecture about the wonders of yeah. breastfeeding, which are undeniable. Mm -hmm. um, and formula was really frowned upon. And that must have been difficult for you. It was very, very hard. Um, I think that, um, yeah, I, I think that throughout my the antenatal classes that I went to, um, and then immediately after I'd given birth, so immediately after I gave birth, they were so keen for my son to breastfeed and to, to latch on, um, and he didn't. I mean, I'd had an incredibly long labour. Um, uh, I, I just I just wanted to be left alone with my son. I didn't want anyone else to touch me anymore, quite frankly. But um, so they gave him a bit of formula. And that also confused me a little bit, but um, because during the antenatal classes, somebody had asked about expressing milk or giving milk in a bottle and had been told this is a breast, you know, a baby friendly hospital. They'd misunderstood um, the, the WHO guidelines, but they were saying this is a baby friendly hospital. We cannot talk to you about bottle feeding. Um, and this is in Britain in the 21st century. Yes, yes. Um, and then, yeah, the, the day after I gave birth, I um, did the right thing and I went to the, the um, sort of breastfeeding um, session on the, uh, the post-labour ward. And she did. She spent a long time telling us about how awful formula was and how breastfeeding was wonderful. And I kind of thought, well, he's had a little bit of formula, but I'm committed to breastfeeding. You know, I, 
I'll be, we'll be fine, we'll be fine. Because I assumed that because it's quote-unquote natural, it would be easy. You know, I had the, I had the desire to breastfeed, we'd be fine. That wasn't, that wasn't the case. So, um, so I thought we were doing great. I went to all the breastfeeding support cafes that I had locally. I was very, very fortunate. It was, you know, pre-pandemic. I lived in a, you know, southeast London, so I had a lot of options. Um, but then in four, four weeks, uh, we were back in hospital again um, because he had lost so much weight um, because, uh, because he hadn't had enough milk. I'm very thankful that that was the reason, mm. that it wasn't anything more serious. But that was devastating. And it also was the inspiration for you wanting to know more about breastfeeding and the history of it. So can I mean Fee was, you and I were talking earlier about wet nurses Mm. and this extraordinary it seems to us extraordinary that women who were not the mother of the child would be professional providers of milk to newborn babies who were not their own and not just newborns when did that die out or is that still happening? Well, it is still happening. Um, so, I mean, it's happening across the world in various other cultures. It's happening here in the UK as well. And there will be women who have breastfed with consent um, a, a family member's child, a sister's baby. Um, they may, rather than directly nurse the baby, they may have you know, shared breast milk informally amongst themselves. That does happen. Um, I think women that do that are very reluctant to speak about that, um, you know, because it is still seen, you know, it's it's seen as quite squeamish, actually, and and quite a taboo, I think, culturally today in the UK. Um, So it did start to die out sort of in Western Europe, kind of sort of towards the end of the 18th century throughout the 19th century. And for a long time, there had been, um, you know, wherever you look culturally across the world, there are texts that tell us what kind of breasts what kind of wet nurse you want to select um, because they are going to be not only caring for your child, but they might be transmitting certain qualities through the breast milk. So you want them to look a certain way. They might, you know, a, a, a brunette might have better quality milk, for example. Um, or, um, so so there's, there was a lot of, you know, kind of um, you, you want to make the right choice. By the Victorian period, um, you have real concerns about... Um, sort of lower class women, working class women, feeding upper class babies um, and maybe passing on some, you know, some undesirable um, characteristics or traits. speaking. Right. (laughs) Dropping the rachers. Possibly, yeah, yeah. And you have, you you know, there's there's men, um, you know, wealthy men who, who kind of write in their adulthood and kind of blame all their health problems on the the wet nurse and her poor quality milk. So it starts to die out. But also, I mean, it's interesting you talk about them being paid. Um, and that's to me, that's a really interesting move towards, you know, you paying a woman to care and to nurse for her lactation, for that labour. Um, and then as breastfeeding goes out, uh, as wet nursing goes out of fashion, women are no longer being paid for that labour. And to be a wet nurse, do you have to be lactating anyway? So to have had your baby recently yourself? Or can any woman start to lactate if a baby latches on um a bit of both so i think um for most wet nurses they would have had their own baby they would be lactating and you know it works on a supply and demand basis so so long as there's that demand um you know as long as they've got their own children or they're nursing and they're employed but um people can induce lactation um and when i was researching this book i was very interested in things like same-sex couples um and one you know one mother but who's not the birth mother um will in you know 
induced lactation in herself through a combination of kind of maybe hormones or, or just kind of expressing and putting the baby to her breast. Mm. And I remember feeling incredibly envious when I read that reason, when I read about those cases. And is it a myth that you can't mix breast and bottle? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, before I went into all of this, um, you know, I, I just assumed you did one or the other, right? And it was a choice that you made probably before you give birth, you know, in terms of what was right for you or what your family did or, or whatever. Um, and so when we introduced mixed feeding, um, when I was in hospital and they said, you're going to have to start giving your son top-ups of formula, I was so confused. And I felt so... Um, so alone like oh god (laughs) and then I find out that actually it's incredibly common and I remember being told I don't know whether you were both told this that that if I introduced a bottle to my babies then they would lose the ability Mm. to latch on to a breast because it would be a different way for them to feed Mm. were you told that one too yeah 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 and I, have I to thought sp- that was yeah. very cruel. I just thought, well, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that that they could manage both if they're hungry. They're probably <laughs> going to give it some welly, whatever it is. There's a nice text here from a listener who says, "When my son was born prematurely, I had a huge oversupply of milk, and I donated it to the hospital milk bank for other babies to benefit. Uh, very proud to have helped others at a time when I felt I had little control over the care of my own son." And I just want to read this one as well from Sarah, who says, I am currently doing extended breastfeeding. I've got a two and a half year old and early baby feeding judgment pales into insignificance. Whilst natural term weaning is anything up to seven years and it is accepted in other cultures, it isn't in ours. And yes, I do have a sense of humour, but no, hearing little Britain quotes for the umpteenth time does not, do not make me laugh, she says. (laughs) Um, And this is where society, us, we pile in on women from every angle, offering judgment and getting... Why should we? Why do we do this? Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. You're, 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 you know, you're in trouble with either way, right? Yeah. You don't breastfeed or you don't breastfeed for long enough. Or you breastfeed um, for too long. Or you breastfeed for too long. Um, or you breastfeed in public or you don't breastfeed in public. Um, it, it, it seems like, um, yeah... Yeah, there's no, you know, there's no way of winning in this game. And one of the strategies does, you know, one of the strategies, I think, is that we pit women against each other and groups of women against each other. Um, And in reality, I don't think that happens maybe as much as as we fear it happens. You do go to some, um, I'm going to say, quite awkward places Mm. in the book. It's it's really wide ranging. There's a lot about you and your own experience, but also a great deal about how others feel and might have felt. And there's a bit where you acknowledge that as a child gets older, there are times when, frankly, their demands for your breasts are right quite irritating mm-hmm. and at times almost a bit repellent mm-hmm. do, you, do you want to just sort of say say more about that because it's it's a very under discussed area it is yeah so so I should say after you know after we had these initial problems um I I did carry on and breastfeed my son until he weaned himself for about 18 months um and particularly towards the end yeah they get more and more demanding with with what they want they can be more kind of you know sort of physically demanding um and uh there were times particularly during night feeds um particularly when my son was waking like every 45 minutes for a feed and I would feed him and but I had this overwhelming urge to just push him off and I never did that but it was this real full body as you said kind of repelling um uh, impulse 
And it was only when, again, researching this book and speaking to other women that I found out that actually others experience this. There is a term for it. It's called breastfeeding aversion. People have it to varying degrees. Some people have real, real kind of issues with um, letdown. Um, So that kind of rush of oxytocin that you get when you're you know, your baby latches on. Um, for them, it can elicit a, a really negative experience, um, sort of emotional experience. So um, so that can happen. Um, but I do think that women are reluctant to talk about that openly. And I think one of those reasons is that we are kind of bereft of a kind of language to discuss it. Mm. I think to talk about maternal love in all of its kind of you know all of its joys and all of its kind of wonder but also the really difficult bits and the times when you know those those feelings are there that you just want your child to get off you and and get away that doesn't diminish the love that you have for your child in that moment as well and the complexity you need to sleep well yes exactly Yeah, yeah yeah selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Our guest today is Joanna Wolfarth, author of a book called Milk, An Intimate History of Breastfeeding. And we asked Joanna how crucial it is to make sure that a mum looks after herself so that she's in the right place to care for the baby. It is about supporting the mother, supporting parents. I think that um, at the moment, I mean, I certainly felt it, that the onus is on the individual parent, right? And you you feel that whatever choice you make is sort of, you're responsible for that alone. Mm. And you're not, because if you want to successfully breastfeed, if you want to establish, you know, breastfeeding... Um, some people will will manage fine. Others will need a lot of, you know, will need support, consistent advice. You know, you need that kind of network to hold you and support you. You need that if you're bottle feeding, formula feeding as well. Yeah. Um, and I do think, you know, I do think that now we tend to kind of expect women to mother, um, you know, alone in a very atomised way. And um, yeah, 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 I think... 
There's also so many other pressures, aren't there, just outside the medical profession. So there are two very clear directions of travel and they're actually not both facing the same way between what the NHS asks you to do, favour breastfeeding possibly for up to 12 months, and a government that sees you as an economically inactive person until you return to work, which they would encourage you to do sooner than 12 months. And you cannot do both, can you? No, absolutely not. Um, and it's really interesting you talk about the economic benefits because um, the, WHO, the, the WHO, World Health Organization, estimates for every $1 invested in breastfeeding support um, will result in $35 in economic benefits. So breastfeeding has economic benefits. It has wide-reaching um, uh, societal benefits that's not to put pressure on individual mothers and no. to judge them if they don't but that is to say at a zoom out on and on a larger level governments need to be doing more to support breastfeeding women and not to see not to see mothers as kind of inactive um on you know yeah you're not doing contributing a job. if you're breastfeeding you are actually doing a job for, for you know however long you choose to do it for that figure's interesting though so that is much further down the line they've done studies that are looking at brain development at nutrition, mm -hmm. all of those kind of things. That's how they're getting to the thirty-five dollar figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it. Yeah, I think it is in, in health benefits yeah. primarily. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just want to mention Francisco. Francisco, I hope I've got that name right. Both my boys refused the bottle and fed five to six times a night mm -hmm. until they were weaned at thirteen and fourteen months old. My rescue Welsh sheepdog Millie would follow me into their bedroom every night and just sit with me while I fed. She was the greatest doula and breastfeeding support I could ever have wished for. Um, well, well done to Millie. She does sound fantastic. Can we just acknowledge some some of the misogyny? I was shocked by this, actually, because there's, there's a real misogyny um, that surrounds those people who don't like breastfeeding mm. and are actually deeply unpleasant and vitriolic about people who do it. Yeah, yeah. And I often wonder, you know, they, they might be the same people that say, you know, breast milk is best <laughs> at the same yeah. time. And I think, you know, this is this is a, a bigger cultural problem. And I think culturally um, in the UK, we say to women, breast milk is the best, but we do not want to see it. <laughs> you know, oh, we yeah. do not want to, you know, can you imagine anything worse than leaking through your T-shirt um, in public? Um, even when it comes to public breastfeeding, um, something like uh, uh, the, 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 the majority of the UK public, I think it was something like 70%, thought it was more acceptable for a woman to breastfeed in a public bathroom, in a toilet, than it would be for her to breastfeed in a public space or in public transport or in the restaurant. So... So there is this, you know, there is this kind of distaste for it. Mm. There is this squeamishness um, around, you know, around women's bodies generally, I would say. Um, but the, the sort of the perceived messiness of, of women's bodies. Um, and I think, you know, breast milk is sometimes seen misunderstood as a sort of bodily fluid, as some sort of contagion, right, as, as some sort of waste fluid. Um, and I, yeah, that, it's definitely a misogyny. Yeah. You mentioned um, that during the pandemic, and I hope I've got this right, you can correct me if I'm completely wrong, uh, that uh, breast milk from COVID positive women mm. was stored and then given to people in care homes. I believe so. I believe so. There was certainly, yeah, there was certainly um, a lot of interest in breast milk and its healing properties, its antibody properties. Yeah. Um, this is nothing new. Breast milk, you know, I'm, I'm a cultural historian, yeah. right? So um, looking back across history, 
breast milk features as a kind of health remedy. So from early Egyptian texts, um, right the way through to um, uh, there was one uh, uh, minister in Massachusetts in the late 18th century who uh, recorded having his wife's breast milk and that kind of cured him of, of, of from near death from fever. Um, so it's always been understood as something that has beneficial qualities beyond the baby. Um, and I think, but I think when it came to COVID-19, one of the things that struck me was the potential that breast milk might have as a, as a kind of therapy, as a healing product. And then that lack of research um, coming yeah. up to that point, you yes. know, that kind of wish, if only we had more research on this, then we might, you know, better understand how it could contribute to, to sort of helping covid do we so we still don't know for certain what is in it then because i i think i read in your book that it can differ between babies that girls breast milk if you've had a girl mm. your breast milk will have slightly differing properties to the breast milk supplied for a male child is that true there is wonderful research being done by professor katie hind on on breast milk and the qualities in it we do know what you know we know what's in it um I, again, I'm a cultural historian, yeah, you're not, not, a medic, so, not a medic. Um, but we do know what's in it, um, but it is bespoke. So it will it, it will change depending on the time of the day. Um, so the melatonin that you might have in breast milk in the evening to help with sleep. Um, although... Yeah, chance to find that. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, doesn't always work. Um, the, the different qualities that you might have between a boy and a girl, whether it's your first child, your second child, it's bespoke. Um, yeah, yeah, so it does change. But, you know, we know roughly the kind of the amazing things that are in it, you know, that it is a living substance. Can I do a very quick, quick fire round? Mm. Uh, is it a myth that you lose weight if you breastfeed? It helps you get your figure back. I couldn't say for certain, um, but I'm very, very interested in the way that it's sometimes sold to women in that way, as if we would choose something purely on the basis that it might affect um, our Oh, um, Good answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, can a different species suckle a child? Uh, yes, they can and what? they have. <laughs> well, what kind of different species? Well, it's like the Romulus and Remus well, suckled by a wolf Rom thing, which Romulus you write about. Yeah. yeah, so myth is full of, of babies that are suckled by animals. Um, it kind of marks them out as being other and, and, and being different. But before infant formula and um, before sterilisation, what are the alternatives? So if, I mean the main alternative would have been to have another woman feed your child. Yeah. If that can't happen, um, and at certain points of history there has been problems around that, for example, um, sort of in the months uh, during a syphilis outbreak, there was concerns um, that, uh, that wet nurses might infect babies. Um, a few centuries later, there was concerns that uh, syphilis-infected babies might infect wet nurses. Um, and so those babies were fed um, by goats. That was Joanna Wolfarth and her book, in case you'd like to buy a copy. Both Jane and I would recommend it. It's Milk, an Intimate History of Breastfeeding. And I deny anybody will be able to ever get out of their mind the image of babies in order to protect themselves against syphilis being fed by goats. I wasn't expecting her to say that, actually, Joan. No. I, I uh... thought she was going to say that it was a mythical thing, as in Romulus and Remus mm. thing. Because you know that very famous... Uh, picture mm -hmm. and it's a carving originally isn't it of a wolf's teats and Romulus and Remus as babies can you not say of... teat please just lying in the direction of the teats <laughs> oh, God. why don't you like that 
I think it's a triggering word. It partly reminds me of the days when I would obsess by the number of holes that the babies. Oh, I know. You know, when you're wandering around boots in a fug and you're thinking, should we go up to four holes? And how long did it take you to realise that you could simply get a safety pin and make four holes yourself? I I, I don't think I ever realised that. There was so much that I just didn't understand or know or, yeah, you're right, why didn't I just do that? Yeah, but they've got you, haven't they? They, they've they've totally got you. Got you. It's, a, it's a really trying time in your life, uh, if you're honest. And you, I mean, we did have an email. I've got to put it in front of me here. Um, if you look at it, it's from Janet. Hello, Janet. Uh, Janet says, if you look at a group of children in a school playground, you cannot tell which child has or hasn't been breastfed. No woman should be judged for her choices regarding bottle or breast or both. Uh, and that's true. I mean, there is a certain amount of propaganda suggesting that breastfed babies are, well, they don't have, is it they don't have eczema, they're unlikely to get asthma, and they'll be incredibly brainy. So in theory, you should be able to spot the breastfed child because they'll be, they'll be reading Shakespeare in the corner of the playground whilst the other kids just play marbles, I imagine. But it's not true. No, but it is true that whilst you're breastfeeding your baby, whatever immunity you have to serious disease, you do pass on to them. I'm not saying for one minute that breastfeeding isn't incredibly valuable. You know, you mentioned you mentioned goats and we do sort of think, oh, goats. But then, of course, you know, we we all most of us drink cow's milk. So what? And and I, I, you know, I know vegans as regular listeners might know. Cow's milk is for baby cows, isn't it? It's meant to be. Yeah. Yep. And oat milk is not meant to be for baby oats. Well, I no, we don't know that. <laughs> we know nobody's asking the baby well, oats. Well, somebody should. And what about, the, it what about the little almonds? What about, well, we've been, we visited the little almonds before. <laughs> we, Have we? Yes. Okay. I think, I can't remember who we were on with, but we did end up talking about whether or not it was very cruel to take the little almonds away from the big almonds. Oh, God. <laughs> We have talked about some crap over the years, haven't we? But listen, (laughs) it's all about keeping each other company. It is. Can I just shoehorn my fantastic breast milk anecdote in here? Uh, Yes. So our childminder, Brenda, she deserves mention. She was absolutely fantastic. She looked after my kids. Oh, it's good, this story. I've heard it. Go on. And I was uh, working uh, back at the old place uh, and she phoned me one day because uh, she also worked in a local fishmonger. She was training to be a fishmonger, actually. Uh, And she phoned up. She said, Fifi, I don't have anyone else I can phone about this, but a woman's just come into the shop and she's asked me a question I can't answer. I was like, calm down, Brenda. Don't worry. Tell me what it is. Well, hang on. Why did she think you'd know about fish? No, wait for it. Oh, oh so yeah, the, sorry, I have heard that. Yeah, go on. Yeah, so the question that the woman had asked her was, uh, is it possible to poach sea bream in my own breast milk? And Brenda didn't know the answer. Neither did I. <laughs> so I just said, well, I think it'll be fine. I mean, if it's fine for kiddies, then it's fine for sea breams. What, was it a dinner party or just a private <laughs> occasion? I've got no idea, but... Uh, I hope it was the right advice. I can't think for one moment it wouldn't be. Was that in East London? It was in East London. Yeah, that has got to be. Peak East London anecdote. Peak. Is it Shoreditch? Uh, No. Not far off. Not far off. No. It's it's a little bit further east from that. Well, we'll take your recipes for uh, (laughs) poached sea bream in breast milk. But you're right. Well, you can poach it in cow's milk. But also people are frying up their placentas, aren't they? Yes. 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 You probably did that every Wednesday on Woman's Hour, didn't you? Not the recipe, but the the present. Gather round.
As you may or may not remember, Fee, my placenta was taken away for research. I do remember. Yes, so just watch it. <laughs> I was going to cook it, but it was so interesting, like so much else about me, that it was taken away in a taxi. I tell you what, that is the thing that you should put on your dating app profile. <laughs> what, you know, the one that asks you for three things about yourself. That would, I tell you if what. If you were to say my placenta's in a museum, I think you'd be inundated. <laughs> It would be it would be a talking point, wouldn't it? Would it's it? Very good. It's been so long. Point. I don't know whether it would be a talking point. Hmm. Okay, then I'll go away to work on that. Um, so thank you very much for all your correspondence. Um, is, have you got time for one more? Oh, always, Jane. Yes. yes. Go on then. Oh, okay. Well, there's a tiny one up here, which is just Claire saying. Uh, uh, dear Finn, Jane, I love your program. I loved you on radio. Yeah, we don't do those. Nope. Uh, but. Stop eating on air. Oh, yeah, it's this, not fair I, to the listeners. No, no shush. Claire says it's off-putting, unnecessary, and I'm sure you both know this, apart from this, you're doing a wonderful job. Now, the problem is, Claire, we've got a special food slot now, That's haven't we, difficult. on a Thursday? Yeah. So what should we do, Jane? Uh, well, we take turns, and I think it was me being repulsive last week because I had one of those delicious Henry Bird phyllo tarts with, what was it, coconut vegan feta which was unexpectedly delicious it was a pea puree on top it really was lovely and i'm afraid i probably did enjoy it quite noisily so i'm sorry about that but you're right it's a little bit of a challenge okay so yeah we'll turn down the microphone on the one who's doing the crunch yeah and hopefully you'll escape that now um thursday's big guest is sally wainwright the creator of happy valley and so much else uh some brilliant telly she's been responsible for and she is talking to us on thursday and tomorrow we're talking actually today i think there were times we both felt that the program was perhaps a little uh, female-centric. So tomorrow, Fee... Uh, we are talking to Richard Reeves, who's written a book all about men and boys, and it's a book which asks some very good questions about where it's all gone wrong for men in terms of toxic masculinity uh, and actually poorer grades and some pretty awful mental health statistics, and it offers up some suggestions on how things might get better. That is tomorrow, and uh, you may have missed the radio show. I can't imagine why, but it ended with... Well, we were so privileged to be able to speak to Jim Dale, not the carry-on Jim Dale, but weather meteorologist Jim Dale, who told us... and We were absolutely amazed, weren't we? We had an exclusive yeah. that he had created the phrase the beast from the east. And he was on because, and I don't want to worry anybody unnecessarily, although a certain amount of broadcasting is all about spreading fear and despondency, is what we're here for. Snow is coming, we're told, sometimes towards the end of next week. And it's likely to be... What was the adjective he applied? Significant. And that, because you asked a very searching question, what did Thank that you. mean? And Jim didn't didn't disappoint. He said it was going to be a good inch. <laughs> <laughs> Brace yourselves. He's also going to come up with a little uh, name for the weather pattern and he's going to let us know first. I'm on the edge of my seat. Yeah, well, we're all on the edge of our seats. This time next week, we'll be slipping and sliding off them because we'll be buried under 10-foot snowdrifts. I cannot tell you, and I'm not alone in this, I know how little I want it to get colder before it gets warmer, Jane. I'm a bit fed up with winter now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, he was right. Jim Dale was right, though. This last couple of weeks has been really boring. It's just been boring. It's grey. It's about nine Celsius. It doesn't even rain. It's just dull. So I'd welcome something, yeah. a, p a piffle from the iffle, 
a biff from the WAF. I don't care what it is, just bring it on weather. Goodbye. <laughs> You have been listening to Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Ben Mitchell. Now you can listen to us on the free Times radio app or you can download every episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget that if you liked what you heard and thought, hey, I want to listen to this but live, uh, then you can Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5 on Times Radio. Yeah. Embrace the live radio jeopardy. Thank you for listening and hope you can join us off air very soon. Goodbye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.